Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everybody to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable Skeen in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by my law partner, George Backrack. Our title today is Tendering a Completion Contractor. As always, we like to open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety today. We gave a uh, special presentation on April 3rd titled Surety's Battling Coronavirus and over 100 Surety Claims folks called in. And in the 10 days since that presentation, 61 people have downloaded the podcast. So uh, thank you very much for your support. We ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. Of course, many of you are now uh, working from home and you've no doubt been through everything that Netflix and Hulu and Disney have to offer and your Spotify playlists are getting boring. So if you're looking for something to do, you can listen to one of our prior recordings at multiple locations. The uh, Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com as a podcast at iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and on our micro site at suretytoday.net. We started uh, Surety Today May 2016, and uh, we've given a monthly presentation uh, every month since then, so there's uh, a lot of content for you to enjoy. Uh, As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise. And we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Now I will uh, turn it over to George to get us started off. George? Mike, can you hear me since I'm doing this remotely? Yep, Um, yep, sounds good. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Depending upon the language and conditions in the performance bond, when the principal is in default and the obligee has made demand on the surety to perform under the performance bond, the surety may have many or few performance options. Under some performance bonds, the surety may have the option to finance the principal, take over, tender, let the obligee perform, or deny liability. Under other performance bonds, the surety may just have the obligation to indemnify the obligee for its loss. Finally, some performance bonds are silent as to the surety's performance options or even the surety's right or obligation to perform. Mike Stover and I are hearing more and more these days about surety losses on certain performance bonds quickly reaching a penal sum loss. For those reasons, the financing and takeover performance options that could result in surety losses exceeding the penal sum may may be out of the question. Furthermore, if the obligee completes the performance of the work, the surety may just be writing a check to the obligee for the penal sum. Today, Mike and I will address a number of issues about the surety's tendering of a completion contract to the obligee, whether to actually complete the performance of the work or to attempt to mitigate the surety's eventual damages. 
The Bond Default Manual, fourth edition, has a whole chapter entitled Tender that discusses the various issues involved in the tender of a completion contractor to the obligee. Mike and I can't duplicate the chapter's coverage and extent in 30 minutes. We will cover some of the issues based upon our own experiences and will provide some comments and suggestions for surety to use tendering a completion contractor in some unique situations to mitigate the surety's loss and damages. Mike? Okay, thanks, George. So first, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the surety's, you know, quote-unquote, right or ability to tender. So there's no statutory authority in the Miller Act that gives a surety the right to tender a completion contractor. And to my knowledge, there's really no such rights in any of the little Miller Acts across the country. Nevertheless, tendering a completion contractor has always been a recognized performance option for sureties, albeit perhaps one of the more less understood options by many obligees. At its essence, tendering a completion contractor is simply one of many methods for curing the principal's default by providing a replacement contractor and paying any cost differential in the cost to complete. In many instances, the surety's authority for, for performing via a tender can be found in the language of the performance bond itself. For example, the AIA A312 2010 performance bond provides at section 5.3 that the surety may, quote, obtain bids or negotiated proposals from qualified contractors acceptable to the owner for a contract for performance and completion of the construction contract. Arrange for a contract to be prepared for execution by the owner and a contractor selected with the owner's concurrence to be secured with performance and payment bonds executed by a qualified surety equivalent to the bonds issued on the construction contract and pay to the owner the amount of damages as described in section seven of the bond in excess of the balance of the contract price incurred as a result of the default. So similar provisions um, permitting the surety to tender as its performance can be found in the AIA A311 performance bond, in the Consensus Doc 260 um, 2011 edition performance bond at paragraph 2B, in the uh, EJCDC form 6C610 uh, 2013 edition uh, at paragraph 5.3. Courts have held that denying a surety its rights under the AIA bond form generally uh, to utilize the tender option or other options in the bond can discharge the surety. In federal contracting, the performance bond, standard form 25 under the Miller Act, does not reference any surety performance options. However, the fact that the Miller Act and standard form 25 are silent about a tender option does not mean that a tender is prohibited. On the contrary, the Federal, Act, Federal Acquisition Regulations, the FAR, section 49.4053 states that after the default contractor, um, after the default of the contractor, if the surety is not willing to take over, the contracting officer may arrange for the completion of the project by any appropriate contracting method or procedure. While there is not a lot of case law regarding tender in federal contracting, there are a handful of cases that will be um, listed in, in our written paper after the presentation where courts have recognized the sureties and the government's tender arrangements. While the tender option may be specifically addressed in a bond form, uh, the option in those forms also typically requires some form of obligee consent. And this can make matters somewhat more challenging because often the, the obligee's representatives are not familiar with the concept. This means that the surety will be required to do a good job of educating the obligee representative of the merits and benefits of tendering. 
The authors of the uh, tender chapter that George mentioned in the bond default manual have done a good job of laying out the benefits of choosing the tender option, and you can refer to that discussion when you're trying to convince an obligee of the merits of a tender. The authors observed that, quote, tender agreements with obligees are generally the product of skillful negotiation and thoughtful analysis, unquote. So now let's focus on some specific issues in the tender process. As with any of the surety's performance options, many, uh, rather, before the surety goes down the tender road with an obligee after a principal's termination, the surety must obtain some critical information concerning the bonded contract, such as the remaining scope of work, the status of the bonded contract funds, and the time of completion. So let's first uh, look at the time of completion. Time of completion can often be a point of contention and will need to be negotiated and addressed in any tender agreement. Typically, the completion contractor will provide an estimate of time that it believes it will take to complete the remaining scope of work, and that will be used as the new completion date in the tender agreement. Usually, the new completion date will be further out than the original scheduled completion date. This delta gives rise to a potential claim for liquidated damages. In addition, in some cases, the principal may have been behind schedule at the time of the default, and LDs may have already been incurred when the surety gets on the scene. Many times, the obligees will readily waive uh, or agree to waive liquidated damages or other delay costs in exchange for the surety's agreement to tender. Other times, LDs can become a sticking point that must be negotiated. In some instances, the obligee will say things like, well, we don't have the authority to waive LDs, or we've got to go up to a higher level to get LDs waived. The surety's response that often works best is to point out that LDs don't need to be waived. All the obligee needs to do is grant a non-compensatory time extension. The time extension will have the effect of erasing the delay and therefore any LDs associated with that delay. Most obligees have the authority at the project level to adjust the schedule and recognize excusable delays. If there, if there needs to be a fight over LDs, I recommend that you check out our prior Surety Today episode on liquidated damages, which was presented on August 13, 2018, for discussion of the various defenses that can be asserted to eliminate or mitigate LDs. The next issue I will address is the remaining contract funds. Typically, the, the principal will have performed some portion of the underlying contract and will have been paid some portion of the contract funds prior to its termination. Accordingly, in the tender process, the surety will need to determine what the remaining contract funds are for the project. The amount of remaining contract funds is critical because that amount is ultimately used to determine the excess cost of completion and the amount the surety will have to pay as part of the tender. The contract balance is generally a function of calculating the present amount of the, the, present amount of the contract, the original contract price, plus or minus the value of any approved change orders or modifications, less the obligee's payments already made to the principal. Now, you would think that determining the remaining contract balance would be simple and straightforward, but sometimes, it's especially, it, it, but sometimes, especially when you're dealing with the general contractor as the obligee, it can become an issue. For example, the obligee may claim deductions for the contract balance for back charges, supplementation, the ubiquitous quote-unquote cleanup charges, deductive or unilateral change orders, et cetera. On the other hand, the principal may be contending that it has extra work, unapproved change orders, or claims that should be part of the contract balance. These issues will all need to be sorted out in the negotiation process to determine the amount of remaining funds. I had a case recently where we were getting close to finalizing the agreement uh, with an obligee when the obligee added a provision regarding water damages that had been sustained. 
sustained and, uh, and no information had been provided on these damages. Ultimately, we got the information and it was $250,000 of damages, which was more than the remaining contract fund. And uh, so the whole thing came to a halt while we're trying to figure out what, what's the nature of these damages. So, but, but that's obviously uh, the remaining contract balance is fertile grounds for disputes. Uh, the next issue to address in the tender process is the scope of work. Determining the remaining scope of work is essential in the tender process. The obligee, the surety, the surety's consultants, and the eventual completion contractor may have the most disputes surrounding this issue. I will address the scope of work from the obligee and the surety's perspective, and George will later address the issue from the surety and the completion contractor perspective. Because the surety will be seeking a release from the obligee of any further obligations under the performance bond as part of the tender process, the obligee will want to know that all of the remaining scope of work under the contract will be performed. From the obligee's perspective, this is where the risk in a tender arrangement really resides. To examine what the remaining scope of work is, we'll analyze it in four broad buckets. The first bucket is the, uh, the remaining unperformed work that's described in the underlying contract, including the approved submittals, addenda, uh, change orders, modifications, what have you. In this analysis, the surety should attempt to have the obligee affirm that the work performed to date has met the contract requirements or if there are any known issues to specifically identify those issues. We just had a project where the principal had been on the job for over a year and over half of the contract funds had been paid out. We assembled a bunch of completion contractors and we went to the project site with a representative of the obligee to view the site. And when some of the prospective bidders asked, well, what's the percentage of work that's been approved? The obligee representative said none. So after that, many of the bidders refused to bid and others, you know, they gave us these huge inflated bids. So that necessitated a lengthy letter from me to the obligee advising, among other things, that if over half of the contract funds have been paid and none of the work has been approved, the obligee has seriously overpaid and impaired the surety's rights. So subsequently, the obligee approved the majority of the work and we had to go get new bids. The second bucket uh, to look at is, uh, any, is, is, is identifying any patently defective work of the principal that must be corrected by any completion contractor. This work will be part of the remaining work regardless of whether the obligee is already paid for that poorly performed work. The third bucket is for any latent defect work performed by the principal that's unknown at the time of the termination or during the, or during the negotiations. Because by definition, latent defects are unknown, this category can provide the most concern to an obligee, particularly in light of the release to be given to the surety as part of the tender. There are a number of ways to address this issue. First, as George will discuss, it can be handled through agreement with the completion contractor. Second, the surety and the obligee can negotiate a set price for the risk to be paid as part of the tender. Third, the surety and the obligee can carve out the latent defects uh, out of the release in the tender agreement and then add provisions uh, to the agreement to address latent defects as they arise post-tender. The fourth and final bucket is, uh, of course, any warranty work that may subsequently have to be performed on the principal's work that it performed prior to the termination. So you're going to have to, uh, to address the, how the agreement will deal with that. Uh, the scope of work issues can be, can be a complicating factor in any tender and is one of the reasons why many experts contend that the tender option is not well suited for projects where the work has progressed too far along and there are many unknowns. 
Nevertheless, there are a number of reasons that we will discuss why, as to why a tender uh, may work to mitigate the surety's loss without the high percentage of, notwithstanding the high percentage of completion of the work. So the next issue that I want to focus on is the, the potential obligee impediment to a tender. So one of the more common uh, potential obligee impediments that sureties may encounter when trying to tender to a governmental obligee is the mis misbelief that the obligee must comply with, com with public competitive bidding requirements before it can execute a direct contract with the completion contractor. The surety's response to this impediment is that the contract was already publicly bid out once and awarded to the surety's now terminated principal. The surety is paying the price increase um, due to the completion contractor's price, and the public owner does not shell out any additional public funds. Further, under general suretyship law, sureties are afforded the opportunity to perform under the performance bond, and tendering constitutes that performance, and it is therefore not a new procurement and not subject to the competitive bidding requirements. Finally, even public owners have an obligation to mitigate damages, and accepting the tender in most circumstances would be considered mitigation of damages, and George will talk about that a little bit later. Arguments uh, such as this leads to one of the fundamental requirements when considering a tender option. Always be upfront with the obligee right from the beginning that the surety is considering a tender of a completion contractor. This includes explaining exactly what a tender is, the documents involved, and what the surety is looking for in a tender, including a release of its performance bond. Be sure that the decision makers, not just the obligee's field people, understand what a tender is and how it works. A lot of times they get it confused with a takeover agreement, and you may not find that out until you get way down the road, and then they're like, what are you talking about? I thought this was a takeover. So you have to uh, be upfront and be clear and make sure you've got everybody on the same page. Uh, getting these issues out um, you know, ahead of time can avoid a lot of lost time and lost expenditures on the part of the surety trying to do a rebid. It can also serve to flush out a lot of other issues in a timely fashion that will give the parties more time to address and find solutions. Okay, George, turn it over to you. The as Mike has said, the obligee's main concern is to have the tendered completion contractor timely perform and complete the remaining scope of work on the project. The completion contractor has two main concerns. First, defining the scope of work to be performed in order to then, second, price the work for its bid to the surety. The factors of scope of work, price, and time are interrelated. The completion contractor can't price the work or determine its time of completion until it knows the scope of work to be performed. The usual process for obtaining a completion contractor for a surety is to bid the work using a full bid package that provides the bidders with all the information and documentation that they need to bid the project as it now stands, partially completed by the principal. The completion contractor has to look at the same four buckets of work to be performed that Mike has listed as part of the obligee's concerns. Identifying and pricing the defaulted principal's remaining unperformed work and known patently defective work may be complex, but it can be accomplished. What is more difficult and risky for the completion contractor is to determine the principal's possible latent defective work. The electrical outlets are in place, the drywall has been installed, but the wires to the electrical boxes have not been pulled and attached. 
There are hundreds of such examples of work not done or deficiently performed that is hidden behind the walls, under floors and ceilings, and unknown to the obligee, the surety, and the completion contractor. In addition, there may be warranty problems for work performed or equipment installed that later fails to work during the warranty period. If the surety receives multiple bids, it can compare how each bidder addresses each of the four buckets of work. Hopefully for the first two buckets, the bid spreads will be pretty close. The divergence will be in the premium pricing charged for the unknowns. The second two buckets for the correction of any latent defective work and subsequent warranty work. While the surety's goal in any tender is to write one check and get a release from any further liability under the performance bond, if the cost of buying out the unknowns is too high, the surety may have to switch gears. For the unknowns, latent defects and warranty issues, the surety may consider having an agreed price list for time and materials plus percentage fee or T&M work for the completion contractor to perform any such corrective work rather than for the surety to pay a large premium up front that just may become a windfall to the completion contractor. The surety would need to get notice of any obligee demands for such work, have its consultant confirm the existence of the latent defective work or necessary warranty work, and then quantify and mitigate the surety's loss as a result. That would increase the surety's exposure due to the additional cost of the T&M work and the expense of having its consultant remain on the project. The surety needs to make its best guess and use its crystal ball of experience when picking the best poison to use, a high premium price or a potentially never-ending T&M work scenario to pay for the unknowns. Now, there remains the issue of the time of completion, the cost of delay. If there are daily liquidated damages, many sureties require its bidders to provide a proposed new completion date and calculate the delay day by day from the original completion date to the new completion date. That delay calculation will provide a cost number to be added to the amount of the bid. However, the surety may negotiate with the obligee for either compensatory or non-compensatory time extensions, as we will discuss later. Now, once the surety has its deal with the proposed completion contractor, the surety needs to lock in the deal in writing. The completion contractor's bid and agreement to be the tendered completion contractor to the obligee, and this should be for a period of at least 45 to 60 days. The surety can't afford to be loosey-goosey on this. It takes time for the tender negotiations and drafting of the tender agreement between the surety and the obligee. Having the completion contract a waffle at the last minute and make additional money demands and changes after the surety has tendered the completion contract to the obligee at a specific price has happened to Mike and me before. The surety needs to have the written confirmation of the deal from the completion contractor. We have not been required, however, as of yet, to try and enforce and enforce any such deal. Now, some surety clients have another method of protecting against this problem, at least to reduce its potential loss, which Mike will discuss next. Mike? Okay, George, thanks. Yeah, uh, one consultant that I recently worked with uh, when we were, we were doing tenders of several projects 
had a policy of always requiring the prospective bidders in the rebid process to provide bid bonds. I thought that was a good policy because it requires the bidders to be more serious about their bids and protects the investment in time and money that the surety has made in conducting the rebidding process. True, there's an extra cost for bidders, but the premiums for bid bonds are fairly nominal, and most bidders who bid on government projects are familiar with bid bonds and are used they're used to uh, providing them uh, with their bids for governmental work anyway. Of course, as everyone knows, a typical bid bond guarantees that if the bidder is the successful bidder, it will enter into a contract with the obligee and will provide the required payment and performance bonds. The penal sum on a bid bond is typically expressed as a percentage, such as 5% or 10% of the bid amount. The, the bid bond surety's maximum liability is the penal sum, the same as with a regular bond. There are two types of, of bid bonds generally. One is a forfeiture and the other is damages. In a forfeiture bid bond, the surety forfeits or pays the penal sum on the bid bond whenever liability is established, regardless of the amount of actual damages or whether the obligee has incurred any damages at all. Coincidentally, on one of these tender projects where we did require the bid bonds, the selected completion contractor got into a dispute with the obligee and was refusing to enter into the completion contract. Because of the bid bond, we were able to apply pressure on the completion contractor and got the issue resolved. For a uh, further discussion of bid bonds in general, I recommend our Surety Today presentation on May 8, 2017 on that topic. George? Our last discussion is about the surety's ability to mitigate its damages. At the time of any default resulting in an, an obligee's claim against the performance bond, there may be disputes with respect to the amount of the contract balance due and any alleged damages for delayed completion of the project, which Mike has already discussed. These disputes may give the surety some cards to play in negotiating with the obligee. For example, the surety may have some defenses to the obligee's claims, such as the obligee's overpayment of the principal, the obligee's failure to follow or comply with the contract provisions, or the performance bond provisions, and others. Furthermore, the surety may have some of the principal's defenses, such as the obligee's failure to timely pay or perform under the contract provisions, the obligee's delays, and the principal's wrongful termination. Assuming that the surety and the obligee have resolved the scope of work and contract balance issues, the next issue is the obligee's assessment of liquidated damages, which Mike just talked about. Those may also be disputed. The surety may not want to expend the cost of proving that the principal is entitled to compensable additional time. Ultimately, as Mike said, the surety would like to negotiate a time extension with the obligee up to the completion contractor's proposed new completion date, even if it is a non-compensatory time extension. Any time extension has some dollar value in mitigating the surety's loss. One method for the surety to get to this point and in resolving other disputes that the principal and or the surety may have with the obligee is for the, for the surety to obtain what it wants in return for releasing and resolving all of the principal's affirmative claims against the obligee and agreeing that the surety won't attempt to assert those claims. The principal is obviously in default under the indemnity agreement. It's in default under the contract, and it may be in default uh, for any collateral demands made by the surety that have been ignored by the principal and the indemnitors. And this default or these defaults can give the surety the right to settle 
and release the principal's affirmative claims against the obligee and bring some peace between those parties. Tender may also be used in other ways, such as for a defaulted subcontractor principal. Mike and I have a semi-firm rule advising our surety clients never to take over under a performance bond with large general contractor obligees, and you all know who they are, when there are four or less months to go to completion for its subcontractor's principal's performance of the work. When the surety takes over, the completion contractor is performing and billing the surety. Payment applications are being submitted to the general contractor obligee, and it takes up to three months for the surety to determine that the general contractor obligee has no intention of ever paying the surety any of the contract balance. Instead, we suggest that the surety request that the general contractor obligee promptly solicit prices to complete the work from its favorite and appropriate subcontractors, whether it's electrical, mechanical, roofing, or whatever, and to provide those prices to the surety. If the cost to complete appears to be reasonable, and we have seen that before, the surety tenders that favorite completion subcontractor to the general contractor obligee with a check for the excess completion cost. The surety can frequently get a release at the same time. When the general contractor obligee pays the tendered subcontractor, it does so with a combination of the contract balance and the surety's payment. That is a lot better than the surety having to pay the takeover completion subcontractor directly and never getting reimbursement from the general contractor obligee for at least a portion of its loss from the contract balance. Now there is one other mitigation strategy, namely tendering a completion contractor to an obligee that won't accept a tender. If the financing and takeover options are just too dangerous, and the outright denial of the obligee's performance bond claim is not legally justifiable, then the surety may just have two options, let the obligee complete and write a check, or propose a tender anyway. If the obligee rejects a tender, the surety may consider tendering the completion contractor anyway to the obligee, along with a good faith payment in the appropriate amount determined by a firm price from a willing completion contractor ready to perform the work. This action may later give the surety a mitigation of damages defense if the eventual obligee claim exceeds the principal's tender offer. Even if the surety does not request a, a release for the tender and its payment, it is a sign of surety good faith, and the payment is probably in an amount that the surety would owe anyway at some point. If the surety does not obtain a release, the surety should, however, demand that the obligee keep detailed records of its correction of any patent or latent defective work and warranty work that may make up its later claim. The surety will have no other basis to defend against the obligee's additional claims if it does not demand specific and detailed proof of what those claims may be. Now, will this work to mitigate the surety's loss? It may, especially if the original bonded contract was to build a Ford and the obligee ends up building a Cadillac, where the amount of the alleged corrective work reveals overpayment of the principal for deficiency, deficiently performed work, or there may be other surety defenses. 
Such a strategy may at least get the obligee to be more honest going down the road. Mike? Okay, thanks, George. So uh, before we open up the line for any questions, uh, I wanted to let everybody know that the next edition of Surety Today will be Monday, May 11th at 1230 Eastern Time. Ordinarily, uh, I would mention some upcoming events in the surety industry, but because of the coronavirus, there's nothing in the immediate future. Uh, we, I wanted to note that we co-sponsor the, um, the Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference that's held every year in Atlantic City. Uh, it's currently scheduled for September 24th. And the board of that is currently discussing whether to proceed with the conference in person. Uh, if the decision is made not to have the conference in person, we will still offer a webinar in that same time frame. So stay tuned. I think we sent out a, uh, a save the date notice asking the question, um, you know, would you be interested in coming in person, you know, at, at the end of September, assuming all of this stuff goes away. Again, thanks so much for joining us today. We, we look forward to speaking with you again next month. And now I'll unmute the line, see if we have any questions. Okay, hello everybody. Anybody got a question? Hello, Hello. Hope everybody's keeping safe and uh, everybody's families are safe. And uh, hopefully when we talk again in May, we'll be on the downside of this thing. But um, seeing no questions, we'll, we'll end. And thank you all. For oh, I got this. is Ted. Hello. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this is Ted. I got a quick question. Um, when you're negotiating LDs with the obligee, have you ever seen a situation well, where they'll kind of um, use a hybrid solution where they'll – say, hey, we'll give you a certain amount of time extension, but we also want uh, some money uh, in addition to, you know, we'll give you a time extension, but we also want a check. Have you ever seen something like that where they're, they'll give you some time, but they also want some money? Yeah, sure. That's, that's part of the horse trading process, and sometimes that's the way, sometimes that's the best deal you can make. I have some, a little response. This is Larry Jortner as well. Uh, there's uh, two other ways of possible mitigation that uh, I've used on these tenders over the years. Uh, one is uh, if you have a principal, particularly one that is charging wrongful uh, termination and you want to get the benefits of the time extension, uh, you, ask for a, um, you ask for an extension uh, uh, for um, payment purposes only to the surety. And uh, that way, the obligee reserves all its rights uh, in, case of, in case it needs to fight a uh, wrongful termination claim from the principal. And in the meantime, the, uh, surety, the surety gets the money and kind of insulates itself from that art, that fight between the principal and, and the obligee. And surety, Bob, owners have been receptive to that in the past. Have you experienced that as well? Yeah, there's been a number, number of times where the, the obligee has been concerned about claims of the principal, and we've been able to either use those to negotiate down and, and, and settle them or, or put them off to the side and, and, and preserve them. Yeah, well, what I'm talking about is um, they agreed to give the extension, but it's only to the surety, and it's for the benefit of the surety only. And so you've actually got the extension, and you, you're getting the money from the extension. Uh, because the obligee isn't used 
uh, is, is willing to negotiate with you, but not the principal. And uh, the principal can't use it uh, as a club uh, that they gave that they gave the extension and uh, waive waive their rights if they get into performance bonds uh, litigation. So it provides the uh, obligee another tool to deal with the surety if it wants to and still protect itself from the, the principal. And I found that obligees very often would be willing to give extensions where they otherwise uh, would not in those circumstances. I, I think that, that you know that's a that's a good point to make that uh, you know your your principal is in default you probably is gone as a, as an entity and uh, you know if you're willing to settle off on their affirmative claims if if the obligee will still wants to make claims against the principal that's fine and dandy as far as we're concerned. Well. No, no, that's, I, you're missing my point again. You're not, you're not, um, you're not releasing the principal's affirmative claims. You're just getting the extension for yourself. But right. at the same time, if the principal wants to sue, uh, he can sue. He just can't use the fact that they gave the extension to you uh, to, to um, bolster their position. But if the obligee doesn't ask uh, for the surety to settle the affirmative claims to the principal, we certainly don't want to do that. And we want to give the principal any, every chance to uh, fight for a wrongful termination. And that has, even in the most unexpected circumstances, resulted in a big, really, I'd say a windfall for the surety uh, in that they were able to negotiate a settlement down the road with the obligee and, and it became salvage money to us. Yep. The other thing was, what what do you do if, uh, in terms of uh, getting warranties, because that's the um, possible tail that still might uh, bang you uh, down the road, if even if you uh, tender, if you don't have if you don't have a uh, warranty and you don't have a, a completion contract for taking over the warranty. Well, the T and M. Possibility of how you know if you've got a completion contractor coming in, the the time and materials uh, way of approaching it is probably the best way to do it. Um, unlike uh, latent defective work, the warranty work is sometimes more ascertainable, and sometimes buying out the warranty work, especially if it's like a two-year warranty, is a better thing to do because that way you pay one price one time. It may be a windfall at some point, but it also may save you from a lot of warranty work. So you can split up how you treat latent effective, correction of latent effective work and how you treat warranty work. And you may buy out one at a premium and the other one you, you, you treat differently. Mm -hmm. Good questions, Larry. And Ted. Give Ted his credit. <laughs> Any other questions? Any other questions? Uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thanks, George. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, guys. Have Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page 
of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.